You're listening to the Refined Hippie Podcast. I am your host, Rebecca Henson. This is my podcast. It's all about holistic health and lifestyle, focusing on a mind-body-spirit approach to living healthfully and happily. If you're new around here, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you're a seasoned, refined hippie listener, thank you so much and welcome back. Today's episode is highly anticipated. My guest and I have been trying to get this on the schedule for months, but he's got quite a lot going on right now. So it took a little bit, but we made it happen. But before we jump right in, I want to chat about a platform that I'm super excited about and I think can change the way creators on the internet get paid. So if you or someone you know has a podcast, YouTube channel, blog, perhaps they are, they're a writer, artist, musician, really anyone creating some type of content that they're putting out there on the internet, this is totally for you or them. <laughs> Tip-a-link is a platform that allows your supporters or followers tip you money. So if they're enjoying and finding value in what you're doing and producing, they can give you a little boost. Personally, for me, there are a lot of creators out there that I have been benefiting from their content for years, whether it's been recipes, tips, videos, maybe art that I love seeing or music that I love listening to. I'm getting something out of it, and I know, seriously, how much work goes into it. So I would love to be able to help them in some way so they can keep on producing and creating such great work. Supporters can tip as little or as much as they want when they want. Uh, there are some other platforms out there right now that require people to sign up for subscriptions. I, for one, have enough subscriptions in my life. Amazon, uh, Netflix, Thrive Market, they seriously add up. So I, I really wouldn't want to ask others to do that. But Tip-A-Link could be on top of those platforms too. Uh, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can still have those other revenue streams along with Tip-A-Link, just giving people another option for helping monetize. You can go to tipalink.com to learn more, watch videos, uh, how it works, how to implement it on your site. You can also check it out on my website, therefinedhippie.com. I have a small gold coin in the bottom right corner. And there's also a button that says leave a tip in the middle of the homepage. But if you click that little coin, there will be a really cool slide over that pops out. It's really cool looking. Um, and like I said, you can tip as little or as much and you can set that minimum tip amount. So I really think this can revolutionize the, the internet and how creators on the internet are, uh, are getting paid. So check that out. So today's episode... Like I said, this has definitely been a highly anticipated uh, interview, not just for everybody else, but for me too. I have wanted to sit down with this guest for a while because he is obviously passionate about the same thing I'm passionate about, gut health, microbiome, and plants. Obviously, I love plants. <laughs> and he is a medical doctor, so we have the science behind why eating this way is healthiest for us, our whole bodies, and our microbiomes. So today's guest is Dr. Will Bolsowitz, aka Dr. B, or the Gut Health MD, if you know him on Instagram. He has seemingly taken the 
Instagram world by storm in the last year or so. But if you aren't familiar with him, he is a board certified gastroenterologist here in Charleston, South Carolina. And he is a big advocate for diversity of plants for a healthy microbiome. He has definitely set himself apart from many others in the industry because of his strong emphasis on nutrition, the gut microbiome, and lifestyle medicine, advocating for us all to make lifestyle changes in order to create lasting effects on our health. His information is all based on the latest in gut health science. So all of this is backed by science. There's no agenda. It's not anecdotal. This is based on research. So the microbiome research and science all shows that our bodies thrive on the consumption of plants. We talk about his life, his upbringing, how he got to where he is today, and when he started connecting the dots. We get into the microbiome, obviously, the science behind it, why eating a diet rich in diversity of plants creates health. We also talk about the current medical system and physician-owned practices, We get into the effects that gut health has on all systems of the body, dysbiosis, paleo diet, paleolithic time period, blue zones, and even the Amazon rainforest. So we kind of touch on it all. It was an excellent interview. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. So without further ado, here's my interview with the super awesome and passionate Dr. B. Hey, Dr. B. Hey, how are you? <laughs> Thanks for it's coming on the podcast. It's great to see you. It's yeah. been a lot of uh, back and forth trying to make this happen, and I am super stoked that it's finally happening. Oh, yes. No, I'm super I'm grateful for the opportunity to come on your show, and um, it's definitely cool that we finally have been able to make this happen. It's just been sort of a crazy year for me, and the amount of things that are happening, and there's, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on too behind the scenes that people don't get to see. I'm doing a lot of like growing behind the scenes. Um, so, and, but I'm glad that, you know, we're here in Charleston, the number one city in the world, according to Condé Nast Traveler. <laughs> according to them, stop saying that. <laughs> it's paradise. Um, yeah, no, and we need to talk about the negatives so we don't get too many people to move here. Yes, please. Can we talk about Hurricanes. how awful it is? We, it's really We evacuate hot. every year, but anyway, yeah. It's really hot here, y'all. It's really hot. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I so appreciate it. I mean, I know that you are crazy busy right now, so just the fact that you're taking the time. But it does help that we're local, so yeah. you're local and I live here. But um. So does everybody call you Dr. B? Yeah. yeah that's what all cool. my patients call me. Yeah. Okay, yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I, I realize I have a last name. That's a lot of vowels and consonants <laughs> and it's sort of overwhelming. And yeah. when I lived in Chicago, it wasn't that big of a deal because like, there, I mean, I don't know if you knew this. Chicago is literally, um, in terms of population of Polish people, the number two city in the world. In other mm-hmm. words, there are more Polish people in Chicago <laughs> than there are in the second biggest city in Poland. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which is kind of cool. crazy. So yeah, so when yeah. I was in Chicago, people knew how to say my last name oh, better I'm than sure. I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, we're here in Charleston, South Carolina, and it's not quite like that. No, so. it's not. Yeah. How did you end up in Charleston? Uh, so I'm, I'm originally from upstate New York. And I'm from like sort of the snow belt, if you will. I grew up in a place where we would get 150 inches of snow every year, um, which 
I mean, there's a part of me that misses that a yeah. little bit. Like it's weird the to romance not see of it. snow. I mean, yeah. it's so pretty. Yeah. I love it until Christmas, yeah. honestly. And then after Christmas, it's like, okay, I'm ready for spring. Over it. <laughs> um, so, but nonetheless, you know, I was like sort of a typical boy. Like I was in high school and I was just like, I told my mom, I'm like, mom, I'm out. I'm heading south. <laughs> <laughs> and I I applied to a couple schools in the Northeast, and frankly, the ones that I got into, I like didn't even look at, which ticked off some of my classmates because they're like, "You got into that school. I wanted to get into that school, uh, yeah. and like, you're not even it. looking at it." Yeah. yeah. So anyway, but uh, I decided I wanted to go south, and in my mind, the, sort of the interesting thing is, in my mind, I always felt like my landing place was the Carolinas. But when I say that, I really mean North Carolina. So I I always saw myself living there and every single step, whether it was undergrad or med school or residency or fellowship, there's a lot of steps when you go through the training that we do for to be become a specialist. Every single step, I was like, gosh, is this the time? Is this the time for me to do it? And um, the right opportunity came at that last step, which was my specialty training to become a gastroenterologist. Um, I had the chance to go to UNC. I think that you can make a very compelling argument that UNC is the number one GI program in the country. It also was perfectly fit for me. It had the right mentor. Um, At the time, I sort of considered myself to be a cancer epidemiologist. And so I was doing research in esophageal cancer, which people may not realize, but there has been an explosion of esophageal cancer in the last yeah. 40 years. Yeah. 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 I've heard that. yeah it's, uh, it's more than a 700% increase in the last 40 years. Wow. So, which is terrifying to think about. So when you see things like that start to happen, then people are asking questions, well, what's going on here? And that was sort of what I positioned myself as. I'm the guy who's trying to figure that out. Hmm. Um, and UNC has the number two school of public health. So basically there's three top schools of public health and every single year, a new, like they interchange which one is number one, two, and three. So it's basically UNC, Johns Hopkins, and Harvard. Those are the top three and they just rotate. And so, so I had this opportunity to do a unique training program there in Chapel Hill, top GI program, top school of public health, the mentor that I needed. And um, so I got to Chapel Hill. And the interesting thing that um, happened for me, a couple things, I guess, are number one, I met my wife. And my wife is a native Charlestonian. She was born and raised on Sullivan's Island. Um, And you, you, I'm sure, can imagine that in someone who was born and raised on Sullivan's Island, you are not going to pry that person away from Charleston. (laughs) They're not leaving Charleston. And Sullivan, oh my gosh, is the best island in the world. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, basically there was only one place that we were possibly going to land, and I think that that's Charleston. Um, And also for me, I realized, so I was on this path to become a clinical researcher. I was doing really well. I was publishing papers. But I... I missed taking care of patients. Mm. And the problem is you can't have, you can't have it both ways. Mm. You you have to pick what you want. So Mm -hmm. you either become the researcher and then you see patients one day a week and that's it. Mm. Or you become the person who takes care of patients. And Mm -hmm. so I, because I missed it so much, I decided as hard as I had worked to, to have this research career, I decided to forgo that opportunity and become a clinical doctor. And, but what's sort of fascinating is that this whole thing is now coming full circle because all that research training that I did, all that study, like literally thousands of hours of work, um, now I'm actually using it and applying it 
in something that I never in a million years thought I, that I would be doing, which is on social media with my Instagram account, the Gut Health MD, or in the book that I'm writing, or I mean, all these different things that I'm doing now that are sort of outside the scope of a traditional medical practice. Mm-hmm. I get to apply that research training and the, those unique skills that I have. And that feels really um, good and satisfying, but completely, it was completely unexpected. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So, yeah, so here I am. And, um, you know, that dream that I had as a child of landing in the Carolinas, it, it, came it true. actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like it, just talking about the Carolinas in general, for a long time, it was either most people thought of North Carolina, like they didn't even really think of South Carolina. Like I studied abroad and uh, this was, you know, like 10 years ago or 12 years ago. And nobody even knew where Charleston was like 50 people in my program were like, so where are you from? Charlotte? You're from Charlotte? And I was like, no, Charleston. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. So and and now like everybody knows where Charleston is. So um, so that's good, I guess. You're originally um, from here? I am originally from two and a half hours north of here. Oh, God. So it's a small town called yeah. Bennettsville. It's near Florence. Nice. 10,000 people. It's really yeah. great. <laughs> um, but I came to college in Charleston, and then and then I've been here for 15 years. So That's cool. Um, yeah, I love it. I mean, but yeah. it's changed a lot. I mean, so. Dramatically, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. My so. wife my wife went to college in Charleston, too. Nice. And my, so my mother-in-law is... Uh, <laughs> Gosh, I don't know. She's going to be so interested that I'm talking about her on my on podcast. <laughs> uh, this is not normal content. Um, my mother-in-law is from McClellanville. Oh, awesome. And she's a McClellan. What? And so, yeah, so they have this interesting oh, family so history cool. where basically they, they came across on one of the first boats after the Mayflower. Yeah. Like, seriously, one of the first 10 boats yeah. to come and um, colonize you know, basically Massachusetts. Yeah. And so they were up there and I like to tease her sometimes and tell her that she's a Yankee. <laughs> well, we might be related because my family came over on the Mayflower. Is so that right? Like, yeah. That's really uh, cool. Captain Miles Standish. He was like one of the captains. I know that guy. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen his plaque in like wherever. Um, yeah, he's like my great, 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 whatever. Um, so I'm kind of a Yankee too. Yeah. On that, on that side. There you go. <laughs> so and now, and now, so here's the the crazy thing. So they they were in Massachusetts, and I don't know if your family story has anything to do with this either, but basically the Salem witch trials happened. Oh yeah. Which which is real. Like crazy. it's so easy to like kind of you know turn that into some crazy Maybe. Halloween story. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean that was a real thing and can you imagine how freaked out you would be if you lived there and you saw people that maybe you considered to be innocent being like thrown in a pond. Jeez. And so it was just complete craziness. So they they decided, yo, we're out. Like this is <laughs> peace, peace out, y'all. we're out, yeah, we're running we're, south. We're done. Yeah. They did the <laughs> same thing that I did when crazy. I finished high school. So they're like, <laughs> peace, me too. I'm out. So um and they got on a boat and they were cruising down the coast. And what happens when you cruise down the coast back in that period of time, like the sixteen hundreds, <laughs> is you shipwreck in Cape Fear, North Carolina. That's oh, what everyone did. It's yeah, like, right. They, they, There's like hundreds they, of shipwrecks there, like right? There's like self-flotation device, yeah. devices there. Like, hey, another shipwreck. Here's your floaty. <laughs> so anyway, um, they shipwrecked in Cape Fear, North Carolina, and they came they came inland. And back then, the Carolinas were just one large colony because right. we were still under British governance. And um, so I don't know exactly the story of how this happened, but basically... 
somehow they got deeded the land mm-hmm. to McClellanville right. and they and my wife's uncle still has this like plaque or whatever that's yeah. that says like the Lord's proprietor has deeded this land that is now McClellanville. Cool. Now, when my wife and I started dating, I, I heard this. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, are they, are they It's rich? like American yeah. like royalty here. Yeah. And, uh, and then I realized, no, they're normal people like everyone else. <laughs> it's um, been hundreds of years. It's it been is hundreds of years. <laughs> yeah. But it's really cool to imagine. And so my, so my mother-in-law grew up in McClellanville and um, has witnessed firsthand this community change yeah. so dramatically through the years right. and modernize. And it's so funny to have that like sort of starting point on my wife's side of the family because on our side of the family on my on you know my family side we're from upstate new york and i don't, I don't know if you know this but like in upstate new york literally everyone goes to the same place for spring break um, everyone goes to Myrtle Beach. Oh, everyone goes to Myrtle Beach. Oh, I know this. And if you don't go to <laughs> so. Myrtle Beach, number two choice is Hilton Head. Oh, true that. And no, there no, is no, nothing yeah. between Myrtle Beach and Hilton Head of any interest Ew. to people who are from upstate New York. Right. <laughs> they don't realize that Charleston even exists. Wow. Now maybe they do now. Maybe yeah, they do yeah. not. But well, then, I'm talking back yeah, in the 90s. Right. Like people did not even know that Charleston existed. Yeah. It was Myrtle Beach. And Hilton Head. And number two was Hilton Head. Those are the only and two places in South Carolina that right, you've so ever just heard a question of. <laughs> where you get off 95. You definitely don't get off 95 and go down 26 to Charleston. That's for sure. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway. So you would come, you would go to Myrtle Beach for spring break? I, let me put it this way. I desperately wanted to go to Myrtle Beach <laughs> as a kid yeah. for spring break. All, Aww. literally all my friends were there. Yeah. Okay. My dad, who I am so grateful to him for this now as an, as an adult. Yeah. My dad would be like, why are we going to Myrtle Beach to buy those cheesy, like Big Johnson t-shirts? Like, why are we doing that? When we could hop in the car and go to Montreal or oh, Quebec yes. City wow. or yeah. Maine or Nova Scotia so or whatever, like, yeah. um, there's so many great places yeah. that you can hop in the car and go, or like, you know, do a road trip to wherever to Virginia mm-hmm. and check out Civil War battlefields. So that's those are the kinds of trips that we were doing, and I was always very frustrated because I was a typical teenager. Yeah. You and I was like, I want to be with my friends. Yeah. I want that Big Johnson t-shirt. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean, they're, they're all wearing them to school and I'm wearing a, hi, I was in Montreal t-shirt and it's like in French, you know, it's not even in English oh and I'm God. embarrassed. And so, Aww. so stupid. I mean, why, why, why are we like that as teenagers? I, I guess that's know. why teenagers are annoying. But anyway, <laughs> you know, so, true. so uh, so, yeah, so it's just kind of funny, the matter of perspective. And Charleston has obviously changed a lot. I mean, Condé Nast claiming that we are the number one city in the world above Paris is crazy. It's crazy. Come on, y'all. Like, really? I mean, I, the first time it happened, I was really ha- I was like, yes, people are finally realizing how awesome the city is. And then when it happened, like, the second and the third the fourth time or whatever i was like okay stop like and it was literally every year it was growing exponentially and i was like i can't even get into a restaurant on a thursday like this is driving me crazy yeah go go away (laughs) yeah for the people listening at home where we live if you were to visit here in the 80s the population in the early 80s was about five thousand, and right now the population is is about to uh cross over a hundred thousand so and that's just that's just our suburb of yeah. Charleston. That's yeah. not the entire Charleston community, right. obviously. And I mean the downtown historic area. I mean when my parents would come here, I mean there was a small little square where you went. You didn't yeah. go past like Calhoun Street because it was scary. That's like, true. 
It That's was true. frightening. I mean, even when I was in college, past, um, I guess where the dirty dollar is, the silver dollar. <laughs> Have you heard of that place? Appropriately named. Yes. <laughs> Appropriately called. Well, it's called the silver dollar, and then everybody calls it the dirty dollar. But it's, apparently, it's not dirty anymore because they had to revamp and, you know, go along no, with the, the I know. I know. Yeah, right. <laughs> but like past that, you would get mugged. Like it was scary. And yeah. if you were walking home at night after you'd been drinking, you were rolling the dice, you yeah. know, like yeah. of what was going to happen to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, they've done an amazing job. Um, you get what you ask for yeah, sometimes. I know. right? And so they have decided to commercialize the tourist industry and it's done a lot of great things for Charleston and it does bring us great restaurants and right. all that kind of stuff. Um, and all these accolades, but then, um, you know, you have, to- you have tourists everywhere. You can't get into the restaurants that you want to go to. You right. can't go to the beach and park because there's someone else parked there. Always. You know, and all just these like things. driving around just in general, just going to the grocery stores. Like what it's, you know, two o'clock. Like why are there so many people everywhere? Yeah. But anyways, we could talk about that all day, but we're here to talk about gut health. Okay. <laughs> um, so when I first learned about you, um, it was actually a couple months ago, one of my friends, who's a veggie friend of mine, um, had sent me your Instagram and was like, oh my gosh, did you know about this doctor, uh, GI doctor in Charleston? He is promoting plant-based. And I was just like blown away because most doctors don't know anything about nutrition, A, and then the fact that a gastroenterologist was talking about diet. When I had a GI problem, nobody said anything about what I was eating and if I should be eating something else um and I wish I had known about you five years ago because I I ended up having to learn everything on my own like nobody taught me anything about the microbiome or gut health or plant-based or and I tried different diets I mean that's a whole nother story um and then finally landed on plant-based but uh how did you get into you know learning about or wanting uh, caring about the nutrition side because most doctors don't have any background in them. So it's interesting because you say, I wish, you know, you wish you had known me five years ago, but if you had known me five years ago, but you might not have you, been you, you, you would have <laughs> known me as a junk food addict. <laughs> okay. So that's the I didn't place know that when I you from. started. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's around then. It's okay. around then. So yeah, I, I come from a place where, um, you know, just my diet as a kid was not good. I would come home from school, um, talking high school and, um, a lot of times my friends would come over to our house and we, you know, we play basketball or we play Mario Kart or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we throw hot dogs on the grill. All right. Mm-hmm. So that's where I started. Um, a lot of processed meat, a lot of processed foods, convenience foods, got into college, continued to do that. I could get away with it because I had it, you know, I was young. I was a, a guy, I was playing a lot of sports so I could get away with it even though I wasn't eating well. And, um, the problem is that my life, you know, obviously life goes on, you uh, enter into your professional career, you're getting older, and that was that's what was happening with me. I was, you know, um, in medicine, working super hard, 80 hours a week, more than that sometimes. Wow. And, um, and also, you know, frankly, aging, get, you know, approaching 30, and felt my health getting away from me gaining mm. weight, not being able to control my weight. Um, I'm six foot four, so I can hide my weight pretty well, mm. but I got up to about 235 pounds. And um, professionally speaking, all these sort of accolades were coming my way and like my dreams were coming true, which was wonderful, but I felt absolutely horrible on the inside. Mm. And um, 
did not connect the dots because it was not a part of my training to understand that nutrition may be the reason why, you know, I'm not doing, I'm not feeling as well as I should. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, anyway, I, I ended up in, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, like we discussed, I met my wife and what was, what sort of changed things for me is I met my wife and I had literally never been around any one vegetarian in my entire life. And she, we would go out to dinner and she would get the plant plate. Like you could get a steak, a chop, uh, you know, whatever you want, fish. She would get the plant plate. Yeah. And I was just like, what the heck is going on right now? And I didn't say that because we were just starting the date. Yeah. But I was like, what the heck is this? You were like eating all plants? What? Right. And like my <laughs> normal dinner, not exaggerating, was to come home from work and stop at Hardee's and grab like a chili cheese dog and a double bur- and a double cheeseburger fries like that was like normal and it was like okay this is easy it's gonna take me five minutes mm-hmm. um and yes i am gonna feel like trash for the next couple of hours but it's okay i can work it off in the gym mm-hmm. and would try to work it off in the gym and just still couldn't i couldn't lose weight i could put on muscle mass i could make myself physically strong i could lift heavy weight but i mean i'm not exaggerating when i say that most days of the week i was working out lifting weights for 30 to 45 minutes and then i would jump on the treadmill and run 5 to 10k or jump in the pool and do 50 to 100 laps and like both and wow. still couldn't lose the weight. And so, so when I saw my wife, who's now my wife, and we were just starting the day eating this way, it sort of opened up questions to me. And I start and around this same time, I started to see these microbiome studies coming out. And, you know, so it was just sort of a convergence of factors that all aligned pointing me in the same direction because I'm seeing these microbiome studies coming out. I I meet this person who eats different than me. And so I decided to experiment with it myself um, privately. Like I wasn't trying to impress her or change how she felt about me. I I never felt like she was judging me, honestly. And so the first thing that I did is I just substituted a smoothie instead of stopping for that chili cheese dog and then double cheeseburger and I would have a smoothie and be like whoa like dude I feel great yeah so much energy I feel great I feel so energized right now go to the gym crushing those workouts and so um it started in that place and it was just a one foot in front of the other it was never any one day that I made a radical hey today's the day that I'm doing this it was never that it was always just you know wow, I feel better when I do that. Let me do, let me try that again. Okay. Let me make this other substitution. Mm-hmm. And so these small changes started to pile up and these small changes were leading to massive results for me. And so I felt it so much in my own life. Um, by the way, over the course of the following years, I lost, um, initially about 25 pounds and, um, it got to a place where I was pescatarian for several years and but still like not being super good about my diet i mean pescatarian but like hey if there's cheese like i'll throw the cheese on my salad whatever and i decided one day you know what i'm just gonna see what happens um if i go all the way and go all plant-based and so i did that and i lost another 15 pounds and i got back to the weight that i was in high school wow and what's really cool is that i have these jeans that i've had forever they're my favorite jeans that got i mean you guys know what i'm talking about (laughs) literally jeans not like yeah, yeah <laughs> clothing J- jeans yeah, not, exactly. not the G. <laughs> so I have these jeans that um I've had forever like 20 years mm-hmm. and they're my favorite ones and I think we all have that pair that like has tons of holes and they're so comfy <laughs> and it's it's so funny to me because there's, there's been this evolution where those were my jeans in my in my 20s 
and I could wear them comfortably. And then I got to a place where those jeans did not fit me. And I literally had to like jump off the bed and pull up at the same time to get them on. And like, kind of like an abrupt, like aggressive yeah. thing. It's like a seventies, like ad of them like, laying on the bed, like trying to button their pants. And then suck in my gut to yeah. like actually put the button in. Yeah. yeah. And then it like hurts later when you get home. Cause you're like, gosh, these jeans are too tight. And you've been sucking in the whole time and your intestines exactly. are all like. Exactly. <laughs> so, and to, to now wear it's like, dang, like I got to put a belt on. Oh, Same jeans. I got to yeah. put, put a belt on. So. So, yeah, so that's sort of the evolution of what happened for me. And and during this process, um, probably right around five years ago, I started to bring this into the clinic and treat my patients with this. And the, the, the reason for that was never like, hey, anecdotally, it worked for me, so it mm-hmm. must work for you. I don't believe – I'm a scientist. Like, you have to understand, right. I'm a scientist. I – studied at night to get a master's of clinical investigation at Northwestern. I went to the UNC School of Public Health that we already talked about. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that, you know, that research is our compass. It gives us guidance. It's not that it's one size fits all, but mm-hmm. there's certain rules, right? There's certain rules of science that are true. And that's just the end of the story. If I take an apple and I throw it in the air, what's the apple going to do? It's not going to float away for any of us, <laughs> right? So, so, you know, I was seeing this as I was finding these results in myself. I was looking into it further. I was studying on the side. I was researching at night and patients were asking me questions. Patients who had ulcerative colitis would yeah. say to me, Dr. B, what should I eat? Yeah. And I'm, I'm the kind of person I can't change the fact that I, I honestly feel like being a doctor is part of my soul. It's what yeah. I was meant to do. Right. So this is not like a nine to five job and at five o'clock I turn it off. If if a patient doesn't get what they need, I feel horrible about it and yeah. I won't sleep that night. You care about them. I care yeah. a lot. Yeah. And so I would go home at night, you know, these patients would ask me questions and it's like, I need an answer. Yeah. I need to be able to give this patient an answer. They deserve it. So I would study and study and study and everything was pointing me in this way. Everything was pointing me in this way, both the studies that were out in the 90s looking at the health benefits of specific diets, Mm -hmm. coming all the way forward to where we are now and the last 10 years of research looking at the microbiome. This is new stuff. This is stuff that was not on our radar 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. um, this microbiome research, but it's all pointing us in the same direction, which Mm -hmm. is that our body thrives with the consumption of plants Mm. and we can dive into greater detail on that. But, you know, so as I was seeing that, that's what was motivating me in my own life. That was what I started to bring into my clinic. I'm not claiming that it's always easy. It's not, Mm. there are definitely speed bumps that need to be dealt with. But at the end of the day, if we're talking about your life, if we're talking about your health and what that looks like over the entire lifetime, I'm not talking about, you know, how you feel for the next one week. I'm Mm. talking about, I want you healthy for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And how are we going to get you there? This is the way. This is the way. The, the, the single greatest determinant of health during your lifetime is the food that mm-hmm. you choose to eat. There's no getting around that. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful thing about that is the empowerment, empowerment that you receive, mm-hmm. which is to recognize that you are not predetermined to live with disease. You are not born with a genetic profile that you can't get away from. Mm-hmm. We have predispositions. We all do. You were born with a predisposition to ulcerative colitis. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, 
if you take that bull by the horns, if you decide to live the lifestyle that is good for you and eat the food that is good for you, not being perfect, just looking for yeah. progress, then you can actually take control of your health. You can get mm -hmm. your body weight to what you want it to be. You are going to feel energized the way that you deserve. It's not that there will be no disease on the planet, right? There will still be disease, yeah. but what it'll be is that you are the best version of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I truly believe in. And that's what I bring into my medical practice. Mm -hmm. um, I still use medication like every mm -hmm. single day. Yeah. Um, I'm not someone who's like, hey, medication should be completely avoided. And right. so, you know, there's a lot of things that are out there that I don't necessarily agree with. But I, gu I guess the bottom line is I feel like if we're going to talk about the root cause of disease and try to get people better, we have to start with diet and lifestyle. Mm hmm. I agree. That was well said. <laughs> Very well said. Sorry for that diatribe. I just like no. That was awesome. Are you for kidding? A there. That was <laughs> <laughs> you can tell the passion is there. So uh, yeah, with the microbiome, I mean, it's just such. It's like the new frontier of like we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg. There is so much information that is coming out, and uh, I think that's really exciting. But you know, as a doctor, how do you go about, you know, learning the new research? Is it required to, to see the new science that's coming out or the new, uh, you know, case studies and whatnot? Like, how does one keep up with that kind of stuff coming out? How do doctors keep up with their yeah, professional I mean, obligations? Right, yeah. Right. So, um, you know, what I would say is this. They're... they're is the train the formal training that you go through mm -hmm. medical school residency for some people fellowship which is usually right. specialty training mm -hmm. all right and that that is your process to be taught how to practice medicine and then you emerge and you start practicing and there are obligations that come after you finish your training mm -hmm. like continuing medical education right, or right. cme right yeah. But the issue is that there is mainstream CME, which mm. is not nutrition-based at all, mm, right, right. right? Right. Nutrition is not a formal part of our training. Right. And so it requires a couple of things. Number one, it requires self-motivation. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to do the additional work. And the problem is that these we do not have an easy job. We're overworked. I mean, you're all already We're overworked. overworked. I know. Right. I know. And so we do not have an easy job. Yeah. And frankly, the one of the major epidemic issues in healthcare right now is burnout, physician burnout. Yes. So, well, and the amount of patients a doctor is supposed to see per day is so high, and they're only given small amount of time with each one. How can you get the full picture of one's health and life if you're only given five minutes of time with them? It's one of the challenges. It's awful. Um, I mean, I would like to believe that we should take more than five minutes with yeah. our patients, but so like in my in my clinic, for what it's worth, I, I will book thirty minutes per patient. Oh. All right, and so it's thirty minutes whether you're a new patient or a return patient. That's substantially more. That's that's like a multiple of mo what most other doctors oh. will do. Oh. All right, um, it's there are challenges that exist yeah. in the modern healthcare system. All right, and part of it is like these doctors are not bad people no it's the it's the there's these the challenges system the system like where set up. yeah and you what you have is you have rising uh cost for education so like the educational debt is going up 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 mm -hmm. i mean i basically pay two mortgages you know every month because Jeez. i went to georgetown for med school and so i have to pay for that and that's yeah. very expensive yeah um, and then you, what you have is you have diminishing reimbursement to doctors. Hmm. 
Um, so to do literally the exact same thing that we did 15 years ago, they pay us less, right? So everything else on the planet is getting more expensive. Yeah, my right, rent is right. way more than oh, yeah. it was 15 years ago. The amount that I pay my employees is way more than it was 15 years right. ago. So all of those costs are going up. The reimbursement is going down mm-hmm. and you create a problem. And what you see is, at least this is something that I am seeing a lot of because I'm in the industry. There's a lot of practices that are not able to stay viable. And they, they're trying to, and that the only way that you can do that, if you're going to pay the doctors less Mm -hmm. to do the exact same job and you're going to raise the costs at the same time, Mm. the only way to keep a practice viable is to see more patients in the same amount of time. So you put us in a very compromised position. So a lot of practices now are being swallowed up by systems. Mm -hmm. It's not an independent doctor's practice. I think that that's a huge problem. Because when uh, a healthcare system has a monopoly over an area, they can charge you whatever they want, right? right? So you go and you get that CAT scan and that CAT scan, which should only cost $200 or $250, you might get a bill for $1,200 for that, right? And that, does that make sense? Is that good for anyone? No, Mm -hmm. it's not, but. I mean, this is kind of across the board with monopolies, I feel like, not just in excuse me, the medical world, I mean, but everywhere. It's just like everything's getting bought up, little shops and little stores by, you know, like six corporations or something. They just own everything. Right. So I feel like the pendulum has to swing back the other way. Mm -hmm. We we need to acknowledge the value in in physician-owned smaller doctor's Mm -hmm. practices because they can offer things at such a better price. I mean, let me put an example into perspective for you. If you go to the hospital to get a colonoscopy, which I, is something that I do professionally, mm-hmm. if you go to the hospital to get a colonoscopy, you will pay five times more than what you would pay to come to my office before you even get the bill from me or the anesthesiologist. You're going to pay five times more just for the facility, for the yeah. hospital. What? And before you even get the doctor's bills from the anesthesiologist and the gastroenterologist, oh whereas you could come to my practice yeah. and get all of that, including the anesthesia, including my bills, including pathology, everything um, for a quarter, for 20% of the price. Wow. So, yeah. So I feel like if we're interested in keeping healthcare costs down, mm-hmm. then we need to, we need to have the pendulum swing back the other way. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. I feel like it is because it's kind of gotten to this extreme, extreme side. So hopefully, hopefully that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, but yeah, so with the microbiome, um, <clears throat> that being like such a new hot topic that like, you know, uh, well, not everybody's talking about, but some people are talking about. A lot of people me. are talking about it. I mean, it's become <laughs> it much more seem. mainstream. Well, and just like gut health in general. I mean, I feel like it was so taboo. Just growing up, it was taboo to talk about your poop. or. Yeah. And as a girl, you know, just pretending, just being like, oh, I don't do that. You know, girls don't do that. <laughs> it's not... Not I'm not sure if like. they do, to be honest with you. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, <I'm just> <laughs> it's all, it's just sprinkles and rainbows it's, that it, come out. It, That's yeah, what I thought. <laughs> it's one of the secrets of modern humanity that we'll never have an answer to. Females. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and really emphasizing the importance of it on all health because, you know, when people see me, it's like, oh, well, she had a GI problem. So no wonder she has to, you know, change her diet because that does make a lot of sense in most people's minds that that, that would be affected. But... What they don't realize is that the health of our gut influences our entire bodies and all these different systems. So let's get into why that is. Yeah, totally. So you, you know, I think that the I think that the important point is um, that 
no matter who you are, if you're listening to this podcast right now, mm-hmm. you should care about your personal gut health, mm-hmm. no matter who you are. And that's because it's not just digestion, right? Right. There was a time where we thought that that's what the gut was right. for. It was just purely digestion. And now we understand that the gut connects to so many different parts. This is like, you know, if this were, if you're, if your health were a football team, your gut is the quarterback. It's running the show. Mm-hmm. It's the centerpiece of the offense. Mm-hmm. And you need a good quarterback if you want to win right. the football game. Right? <laughs> cool, I like that. So, and, and that's because, like, let, let's talk about some of the examples. So, like, your metabolism. Your metabolism is deeply intertwined with your gut. Um, let me give you an example. There are these crazy studies from literally almost 15 years ago now, from 2006, one of the first studies to sort of change the game and and really open our eyes to the power of the microbiome was done by Peter Turnbaugh, who's a famous microbiome researcher. And basically what he did is he took mice, okay, this was done in the laboratory, and he took germ-free mice. What that means is essentially these germ-free mice don't have a microbiome yet. And he would transplant into these mice the microbiome of either an obese mouse or a skinny mouse. And what he did was held constant the food. The calories were the same. The nutrition was the same. They would eat the same amount. There was literally no difference in what these mice were ingesting. But what blew everyone's mind is that the microbiome that was transferred from the obese mouse into the germ-free mouse would result in an obese mouse. That's amazing. And the microbiome from the skinny mouse into the germ-free mouse would result in a skinny mouse. In other words, by taking the poop Mm -hmm. and transferring it, you could transfer the characteristic obesity versus lean, lean body habitus, Mm -hmm. without changing what they were eating. Same amount of calories, right? So it's not quite as simple as calories in, calories out. And I actually just had this conversation with a patient this week that you know, we all have that person that we know, and maybe it's you personally listening to this episode, who who can try to do everything right, can eat the right food, can exercise, trying to do everything, and still not be able to get control of their weight. And I feel for that person so much, but I think the thing that's holding them back is their microbiome, totally. honestly. And yeah. that's where changing the microbiome is the critical piece for that particular person. Right. Our metabolism deeply intertwined our immune system 70 percent of our immune system is in our gut Mm -hmm. there are a number of autoimmune diseases which by the way are rapidly emerging ulcerative colitis is way more common today than it was 50 years ago Mm -hmm. Um, so is celiac disease so is autoimmune thyroid and rheumatoid arthritis all of these autoimmune conditions are emerging right exploding and that is because 70 percent of your immune system lives in your gut you can't separate the immune system from your microbiome. They literally are like right next to each other mm-hmm. doing their job. And when you damage the microbiome, you damage the immune system. And then we deal with the consequences that come with that. Mm-hmm. Deeply intertwined. Um, our, our mood. Our mood. So like um, people wonder, can your gut connect to how you feel from an energy perspective in terms of um, your mood and how happy you are versus depression or anxiety? 100%. 100%. And what we have found is that 90% of serotonin is actually produced in the gut. Serotonin is the happy hormone. Mm-hmm. It controls your energy levels. It controls your mood. If I treat someone with Zoloft, 
which is an anti-depression uh, or anti-anxiety medication. The way it works is by boosting serotonin levels. Mm. 90% of serotonin produced in your gut, intertwined mm. again with your gut microbiome. Yeah. Our genetic expression, mm-hmm. our genetic expression, like you would think that, hey, your genes, they are what they are, mm-hmm. right? They are what they are. But that's not really true. Right. There are some genes that people carry and never express the disease. Let me give you an example. Celiac disease. So celiac disease, um, which has increased 500% in the last 50 years. And I mean, frankly, I think it's probably even more than that. I'm diagnosing it all the time, all the time. Celiac disease is a genetically motivated disease. What that means is that if you don't have the gene, you can't develop celiac disease. Okay. And it's a very common gene. One in three of us carry the gene. So if we bring one more person into this conversation, one the odds us. would be that one of us would have that gene. Wow. Yet the condition affects about 1% of Americans. So how do you rectify that? How do you say that it's one in three people that carry the gene, but it's one in 100 people that actually manifest the disease? Mm. In other words, 97% of people who have the gene for celiac disease never actually manifest celiac disease and we were always wondering like what's the deal with that and the answer to that question came in the last few years from a researcher at mcmaster which is up in ontario canada her name is elena verdu and basically what she showed us is that when you alter or damage the gut microbiome the word that i would use is dysbiosis Mm -hmm. some people might use the expression leaky gut we're probably we're basically talking about the same thing Mm -hmm. When you alter or damage the microbiome, you have the ability to activate that gene. It's like Mm. flipping a light switch. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is how you rectify that someone can have a genetic predisposition. Mm -hmm. They can carry the gene and potentially live their entire life and never have celiac disease. Or you, on the flip side, can carry that gene and one day, boom, you have celiac disease and now you're not allowed to touch gluten for the rest of your life. Right. So... um, so, I mean, connects to our metabolism, our immune system, our mood, our genetic expression. Hormones. Our hormones. Yeah. Yeah. Big one. So, um, we have uh, found in recent years that our microbiome is altered in people who manifest endometriosis. Mm. Part of the issue in that particular case, endometriosis, is excessive excessive production of estrogen Mm -hmm. and what we have discovered is that estrogen metabolism hinges in the gut microbiome because the gut microbes carry an enzyme called beta glucuronidase that activates estrogen Mm -hmm. so the point is that your gut microbiome essentially has their hand on the lever that is the floodgate Mm -hmm. you can open it up and allow too much estrogen to flood through or you can close it off and shut it down. Mm-hmm. The The flip side of endometriosis is polycystic ovary syndrome, mm-hmm. PCOS. So common now too. And very common now. Yeah. And PCOS is also a hormonal imbalance. Mm-hmm. It's not as straightforward as just saying low estrogen because it's not exactly that. Some people with PCOS have completely normal estrogen levels. Mm-hmm. But what it is is it's uh, excessive production of androgens, which are male hormones. And there's a loss of balance between the female hormones and the male hormones. And mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why people manifest PCOS and they, they get like, for example, an increase in bodily hair. Mm-hmm. And so, well, so how about androgens? Are androgens produ- produced in the gut microbiome? 
Yes. There is one specific bacteria that we have discovered called Clostridium sindens, which mm. is completely capable of producing androgens. Mm. So the point is that if we take a step back, like I'm telling you as a medical doctor, and I take a step back and I look at this broad picture, metabolism, hormones, uh, mood, and um, neurotransmitters, um, genetic expression, immune system. I've basically just summarized the entirety of human health. Seriously. What's left? Yeah. What's left? Like, yeah. I mean, I guess we could talk about the vascular system, and I could tell you how the gut microbiome is connected to the vascular <laughs> right. system too. Yeah. So, because it is. It's literally everything, yeah. So it's literally connected to everything. It's insane. And it's not just, it's not just what's happening with your digestion. Mm -hmm. It's what's happening throughout your entire body, including your brain. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I think the brain one is hard for people to wrap their brain around <laughs> <laughs> but yeah with just like parkinson's and als and all that you know um and that's that's the new frontier too i mean just like the microbiome is and and studying about the effects of it on neurological disorders is huge and it i mean i think is basically the missing puzzle to um to quote unquote curing these things you know because everybody's looking for a pill to to cure things but it's basically right on your plate which is what you're putting in your body so but I think people are really confused because there's a lot of misinformation out there and then you know people will go to their doctor and ask them what should they be eating and the doctor replies with you know just eat healthy or eat in moderation but nobody even knows what healthy is and it looks different to everybody else um, and moderation doesn't work so what really is the the healthiest diet um, <laughs> for your microbiome and then obviously your overall health. I mean, yeah, yeah. I appreciate you um, asking this question because I, I think that it does warrant conversation. Mm -hmm. um, that it's not as simple as just saying, "Hey, eat this." Mm -hmm. Right? There is no one size fits all. Right. Okay. But when I say that there is no one size fits all, um, I want to make sure that I'm clear in saying that. Um, your diet will be completely unique to you, mm -hmm. but the rules of science will also apply to you. Mm -hmm. And you can't get away from that. Again, if I throw an apple in the air, that apple is not going to float away for any of us. It's going to come back down. Mm -hmm. The studies show us what is um, happening with your microbiome mm -hmm. when you eat certain foods. And although the response that you have will, may not be exactly the same for every single person, I use the analogy of, an, of a compass because I really truly believe that that is, that is actually accurate. That, mm -hmm. you know, you are, mo we, if, if we open up our compass, we're all moving north, <laughs> right? Yeah, right? We're all moving north. It's yeah. just that for us, that walk or that path is slightly different. Right. Right. So science is our compass that guides us towards ultimately understanding what's going on with the body. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we look, the part of the reason that there is such confusion related to what to eat is that we have never had such access to information mm. in human history. True. Right. So it's overwhelming. I mean, it's overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you go back literally just to when you and I were kids and we got our information the same way that humans got information for literally thousands of years, mm -hmm. which is books yeah. or the newspaper right. 
or, you know, in the last hundred years, the radio or the television, Mm -hmm. right? But we didn't have access to, hey, right now, I want to know what's happening with this. And I want answers. Right. So we have more access than we've ever had before. And that is actually creating challenges Mm -hmm. because there's no one to vet that the information is accurate that you receive. Mm -hmm. There's no way to, there's no one to tell you, hey, here is your reliable source Mm -hmm. for this particular information. And each one of us listening at home, you have to be personally responsible Mm -hmm. for vetting your own source for information. Mm -hmm. And I will just tell you right now, one of the big problems is confirmation bias. People can get very, I'm not like, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone by any means, but people can get very lazy about or unwilling to accept the good, high quality information Mm -hmm. if it's not consistent with the story or narrative that they want to fulfill. And so if the goal is confirmation bias, if the goal is to find someone to support your opinion, no matter how crazy that opinion may be, (laughs) you will find someone. Right. Right. So there are diets that are very popular right now Mm -hmm. that are being pushed Mm -hmm. that if you look at the source for the information Mm -hmm. for that diet, highly, highly, highly questionable source. Right. 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 And even if it's an MD, is this the MD who is the most well qualified to provide you with information? Not all MDs are the same. I, I literally spent two extra years of my life plus thousands of hours at night and on the weekends studying so that I could, so that I could essentially do this research thing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so that I could understand how to interpret research. Just the fact that I got my MD from Georgetown does not make me by itself qualified Mm -hmm. to do those things. Because frankly, if it did, I wouldn't have wasted thousands of hours (laughs) and a lot of time and a lot of effort. I would have been, I would have been having fun. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I wouldn't have been in that classroom. I wouldn't have been grinding out those papers. I wouldn't have been doing those things. I would have been just having fun. So we need to get really good about vetting our information. Mm -hmm. Coming back to this question, what is the best diet? What is the best diet? I want to see as, as a scientist, Mm -hmm. as someone who is true to the science and I'm not, this is not agenda driven. This is purely, let me let the science be my guide. Mm -hmm. I want to see layers of evidence. That's what I want to see. You can't take one study, hand me one study and then change the way I think about things. Right. I need to see all the layers. I want to see the test tube studies. Mm-hmm. I want to see the animal model studies. I want to see the human studies, population-based studies. And I want to see the randomized control trials. Okay. And after I look at all that information, I want to see where it's guiding me. And when it all points in the same direction, we have such scientific power. Right. And if it's not all pointing in the same direction, then we need to rectify those things. Mm -hmm. We need to really give it some thought and see where we ultimately stand. And when we do these things, when we look at everything all the way to the top, the test tube studies, the animal model studies, the population-based studies, the randomized controlled trials, we see study after study after study celebrating the benefits of a plant-based diet. Yeah. And me personally, I look at the microbiome studies and I would bring forward one of my favorites, literally from one of the top scientists in the world, a person that I hope one day wins a Nobel Prize for his work, who is changing our understanding of, of science and 
has like i have no clue how this person eats there's <laughs> no way he has an agenda right there's no way right. this is a man who is at the top of his field in terms of science and mm -hmm. if he had any whiff of an agenda he would compromise his entire career oh, yeah. it'd be over yeah. and so wh who i'm talking about is rob knight who's a scientist at the university of california san diego and what he has done is built something called the American Gut Project, which is more than 11,000 people from 45 countries around the world who have submitted their stool specimen and also submitted uh, survey data about what they eat and how they live. This is the largest, most high quality study that exists mm -hmm. to answer the question, what is the single greatest predictor of a healthy gut? And when they ran the analysis, there was something that popped out powerfully compared to everything else. And that is the single greatest determinant of a healthy gut is the diversity of the plants in your diet. Mm -hmm. And it just makes so much sense. So much sense. And so I am a huge believer in plant-based diversity. Mm -hmm. I feel that no matter who you are and what dietary philosophy you come from, this should be a part of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And to sacrifice plant-based diversity, like my concern are elimination diets. Mm. When people do categorical yeah. eliminations, which are not grounded in science, right. which, are which are grounded in theory, right. all right? When people do this, what we see in our studies consistently is damage to the microbiome. Mm. When you narrow the diversity of your diet, you narrow the diversity of your microbiome. When we shrink the diversity of our microbiome, we predispose ourselves to dysbiosis, damage mm -hmm. to the microbiome. Mm -hmm. And when, when dysbiosis arrives, that's when disease starts to show up. Mm -hmm. We want a broadly diverse microbiome. A broadly diverse microbiome is a healthy microbiome that's able to take on whatever you need it to do. Mm -hmm. And in order to have a broadly diverse microbiome, you need that diversity of plant food mm -hmm. in your diet. So I am a huge, if we want one takeaway from this entire podcast, mm -hmm. that's it. Mm -hmm. We need diversity of plants in our diet. Mm -hmm. But when I look at the full spectrum of food that you could eat, the question that I ask is this. Does it promote health mm -hmm. or does it take health away? Mm. It's not about being perfect. There is no perfect diet. I am not perfect. I will tell you right now. I <laughs> eat food. Like, I love not a moo. Oh, my God. I love not a moo. Okay. It's so good. So, and that's ice cream. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, by no means am I claiming that not a moo is contributing to right. my personal health, okay? <laughs> right. So this is not about perfection. This is about progress. But, right. I, but I want people to understand that we need to be willing to put whole foods mm -hmm. on the chopping block and say, is it good or is it bad for me? Mm -hmm. And if it's good for me, then I want more. Mm -hmm. And if it's not good for me, then I need to really think about what part of my life and health I want that food to be. Mm -hmm. It can still be a part if you want it to, but it should be done in extreme moderation. Right. And when I do that and I line up these different plant foods, it's like impossible for me to find one where the negatives outweigh the positives mm -hmm. with the plant foods. Right. It's literally impossible for me to say that. Yeah. It's just so easy down the line, every single one of them, the benefits outweigh the negatives. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, processed food, easy. Get yeah. rid of them. Yeah. And everybody feels better when they do that. Everyone I mean, feels better yeah. when they do it. And when you and when you look at diets that like are um, very very low carb diets, right. which are structured, 
and people feel better and they say, hey, my autoimmune disease got better when I do that. The reason why they got better on the short term is that they have eliminated processed foods. That's the reason why. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the problem that they're, that they're going to run into is long-term health. Mm -hmm. So in the short term, you can provide benefit just by eliminating processed foods. Yeah. You but, might lose weight and feel better, but right. long-term. But in the long-term, the issue is if your diet is made up of a lot of um, animal products, the mm -hmm. meat, the dairy, and the eggs. This is where I say, look, I understand if you want to have some of that in your diet, you, you, you are under no obligation from my perspective to be 100%. Right. But you are not adding to your health when you eat those foods. I can't find evidence to support. If, if, if the people listening to this have evidence to show me that you really are adding to your health by eating those foods, please reach out to me on Instagram, the gut health MD. I would love to review the science of what, of what you found because I can't find anything to say that that's actually adding to your health, that you're right. going to live a longer life as a result of eating that food. Mm -hmm. And, and part of sort of the, Hey, like we just, you know, kind of made a strong argument, but now let's, let's just finalize this. Let's spike the ball. Okay. What spikes the ball for me and just kind of closes this argument off and we're done is the, the blue zones. Yes. Okay. By Dan Buettner, which was a book that came out about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, um, where basically he looked to see who are the healthiest people on the planet. And he found five populations of people that are um, essentially the healthiest people. Okay. These five populations are completely separate. They're, they're from different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. Um, Sardinia off the coast of Italy, uh, Ikaria, Greece, uh, Okinawa, Japan, and then my favorite, Loma Linda, California. And the reason why I love Loma Linda is that there's a lot of people who argue, oh, well, it's, you know, it's because they have this or they have that. Well, the beauty about looking at Loma Linda is they live in our country. Mm -hmm. They have the same food supply. They have the same healthcare system. There is not a special like food supply that only goes right. to Loma Linda, <laughs> right? So they they have the same access to stuff that we do, mm -hmm. but they live ten to twelve years longer than we do, and they're in the same wow. country as us. Yeah. And so, what are these people up to? And you know, there's more to it than just diet. But here's the key: five cultures completely separate from around the world. Every single one of the five is at least ninety percent plant-based at least 90 percent plant-based and they are not living anything close to the way that we live in the united states and they're also not living a low carb high protein diet so so yeah so i, I just I, I feel like you know there's all these layers of science that exist um you know starting with the test tubes and the animal studies including epidemiologic studies population-based randomized controlled trials and then you and then you go and you look at oh my gosh, what are the healthiest people on the planet eating? What are the people that live right here in our own country in Loma Linda, California? What are they eating? Mm -hmm. And um, it just kind of drives the nail home um, to say this is real, this is completely real. This is not just theory. Um, frankly, there's so much science to back this up at this point. We're not going to have some sort of, I'm just telling you right now, there's not going to be some breakthrough that changes the amount of science that exists right now. What this is, is that people need to start to come around to the idea that this is real. And I feel like that's part of where the microbiome comes in really handy mm -hmm. because the microbiome science wasn't there 15 years ago. 
Um, I think we already had enough st studies to kind of say what the, what the scoop was 15 years ago, but I feel like the microbiome is really making it quite clear to us what's right. going on. Right. Yeah, I think um, as far as like different diets and things go, you know, people are always searching for the magic pill, quote unquote, or, you know, the magic diet that's going to do it for them. And certain diets that are out there right now are easy, more easily obtained because they're not that far off from the standard American diet, really. Yeah. You know, like Good the point. paleo diet is pretty close to it, minus the processed food. I mean, right. you're not having to really cut out your your meat that you've been eating, you know, your entire life, right. <laughs> which um, uh, is obviously unfortunate that that is such a big thing because, like I said, I think it's easier for people to do and they feel like, oh, well, I can do that. I can do the paleo. That's easy, you know. Um, and and plant-based seems totally bonkers to most people because we've been brought up in this certain paradigm, which is that humans need meat to, to eat and that it's biologically we're, that people will claim that we're biologically made to eat meat. Um, I want to talk about that. Let's talk about that. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, there is some truth for sure to the idea of us being sort of um, built to eat meat. And the reason why I say that is that I, I do think that there is a natural desire that people have that mm. they're born with to want to consume meat. Um, you see it in children, you know, mm. uh, even just like protein in general. But I think that the important thing is this. So th th there's these sort of um, uh, evolutionary biology theories that have been put out there that were started with the paleo diet, mm -hmm. right? And that is that sort of creates the, the basis of their argument. And then from that point forward, they kind of ignore everything else. Right. Like we're not going to acknowledge, yeah. right, all the right. other science to back up, like, for example, the whole, the benefits of consuming whole grains, right. which are myriad. On paleo, and on paleo, they don't eat grains, right? They don't eat grains. And yeah. And, and and there was a microbiome study that just came out recently looking at the paleo diet and showing that the more rigidly adherent to the, to the paleo diet that you are, meaning the more strictly that you eliminate grains, right. the more that you put yourself at risk for ultimately developing cardiovascular disease, heart disease in the future. Mm. So again, not the short game. That's not going to be a three-month thing. Right. That's a, hey, you did this, uh, you know, starting in potentially your 20s, and now here we are and you're 55 years old, mm -hmm. and you can't take that away. You have that now. You have that heart disease. Um, so, but the, the key here is this, though. I want to go back to the evolutionary biology conversation, all right? Because the idea of, oh, hey, that's the way that we ate 10,000 years ago, and therefore that's the way that we should eat now, mm -hmm. there are so many flaws in that argument so that, we need, that we need to talk about, that people yeah. really need to, I want people to understand this. Mm -hmm that the average life expectancy of a person during the Paleolithic era was 28 years old. Okay, so if your goal is to, if, you're, if your goal is to live for 28 years, I understand. Yeah. Like, you can, you, you, can eat the, you can eat that meat because it's not going, who cares if you're going to You can be Kurt Cobain, you know, I mean, or you know, how old was he? 26. Yeah, well, yeah. if you're going to get heart disease, the heart disease is not going to manifest for most people right. in a way that actually gives you a heart, atta heart attack mm -hmm. by, by age 28, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that shows up in your 50s. Mm -hmm. But 
the studies show us that you are already starting to manifest the heart disease at age Decades 28, before. Yeah. way before, way before, way before. Yeah. So, okay. So if that was your goal, then fine, you can get away with that. But let's set the scene of what the Paleolithic era looked like. People were starving. Yeah. Yeah. People were literally starving. Right. The idea of survival of the fittest that we have no understanding of in 2019 no. because like <laughs> look around, it, it, yeah, it, we're not living in that right. era right. where people were dying of infection, right. dying from violence, and dying of starvation. Mm-hmm. All right, they were living in famine, and if you live in famine, what do you want? Do you want high nutrient, low calorie? Or do you want high calorie, low nutrient, which is more likely to create survival right. when you live in a famine? The answer to that question is you want high calorie, yeah. right? You need because that. you don't know when you're going to eat next. You either. don't know when yeah. you're going to eat yeah. next, right? Yeah. They also did not have a consistent supply. It's mm-hmm. a joke to pretend that they were eating meat yeah. three times a day. Exactly. They were not. We're, I mean, we're not built. I mean, you know, physiologically, we're not built. I mean, I don't have claws. I don't have, you know, a big crazy. I can't, you know, run down an antelope. Like, that's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, but, but, so the issue is that if you look at that period of time, the entire goal of, uh, if you were, when you were born, okay, let's say, let's look at me. I'm born during the Paleolithic time, right? Mm-hmm. Success during my lifetime is do I live long enough to have children? Mm-hmm. Because if I do, then I have passed on my genetic code. And then you're, and then you're done. And then I'm I mean, done. Yeah. And then it does it. not matter what right. happens after that. Right. Right. And that's the entire problem with these evolutionary biology arguments right. is that they do not look at anything past procreation. Mm-hmm. And go back literally to go back just 100 years. Go back to 100 years. Go look at the turn of the 20th century. The average life expectancy was only about 50 years. Mm-hmm. Right, and here we are, and right now the life expectancy in our country is 80 years. Mm-hmm. So we have added an additional 30 years to our life expectancy just in the last hundred years. Right. And the question now becomes not, hey, what can what can help us to live long enough to procreate? That's mm-hmm. not the issue. Mm-hmm. What helps us to live a long life, free of inflammation, free of disease? So that those decades, those added decades that we have that are new to mm-hmm. humanity, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, how can we set ourselves up so that we have a life of health that's enjoyable? Right. Because right now, the way that our parents' generation is living is a life riddled with disease, medications, right. and basically management of chronic illness. Right. And that, that is not, I mean, obviously ideal. Right. But I think a lot of people at this point just think that that is, that's what you do. Once you get old, once you get past 50 or 60, all of these things, all these ailments, all this pain, like that's, that's normal. You know, that's become normal for us to, to wake up in the morning and feel inflamed and your joints hurt and all these kind of things. But that's not normal. We've normalized abnormal. We've we've normalized abnormal on so many different levels. I mean, Mm -hmm. let me give you an example from my space and in the GI world. People think that having one bowel movement a day is normal. It's completely not. Right. Um, if you were consuming enough fiber, you would be having two or three bowel movements per day. 
And so now it's not to say that, oh, well, if you have one bamboo in a day, then you're like, you need to take a laxative or something like that. Right. That's, that's, that's not real. Or take fiber. Yeah. Well, a fiber <laughs> supplement, right. Like fiber that's not going to cover up all right. the issues. Right? right. And you know, what's sort of interesting is you can look and there's these communities, they're, they're rapidly shrinking and getting, um, sort of run out of their natural habitat. Um, but like in the Amazon rainforest. Or um, in Tanzania, there is mm. a community called the Hudza. And the Hudza have been studied. Um, they are native tribal people. They live a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Okay, So they don't have farms. Um, and what's fascinating, if you look at the Hudza, is they eat clearly over 100 grams of fiber per day. Crazy? And the average person yeah. in the United States is about 15. Ooh. And we're asking, where do we get our protein from? Yet most people in the United States are getting like literally three times or four times more protein than they actually need. There's virtually no protein deficiency except in the people who are super sick in retirement communities. Or malnourished. Like they're literally starving. Or have cancer. Oh, yeah. In the United States, there's almost no protein deficiency. But what there is is there is rampant fiber deficiency. Mm -hmm. 97% of Americans don't even get the minimal Mm -hmm. standard of fiber consumption. Mm -hmm. And most of them, if they are getting fiber, it's from, you know, some processed bar or whatever that that does say like oh this town has i don't know 10 or 20 grams of fiber but most americans are not getting the fiber from whole plants fruits and vegetables exactly which is which is the the natural source and you know if you if you talk about our food our food is really truly at the peak of its health benefit when you when you pick it Right. right. Yeah. And from that point forward, it's the things that we do to it that start to diminish the nutritional value of our food. And at some point, unfortunately, it starts to cross the line where this food that started off super healthy, right. we have now made it unhealthy. And right. now it, rather than rather than healing us, it's actually inflicting disease on us. Mm-hmm. And that's what processed food is. Mm-hmm. You process it until it gets to the point that it's now an unhealthy food. Right. And it doesn't even look any it doesn't even resemble real food you know it's not nutritious nutritious at all no and this is and this is the reason why a vegan diet can be an unhealthy diet you're like a potato chip vegan that's what i call it right <laughs> right exactly oreos oreos are yeah, vegan oreos are vegan <laughs> so um you can you can eat a vegan diet and be completely unhealthy right. and that that is really good for the environment right um that is really good for the animals right. from from an ethical perspective but that that has nothing to do with your health right I mean, this is why I call myself a plant-based vegan yeah. because I focus my diet on whole food plants, but I also am vegan for the animals as well. Like at this point, you yeah. know, it's just like an all encompassing, you know, trifecta of, uh, you know, benefit for, for everyone. It benefits your body and then obviously your family because then you're going to live longer and healthier. So everybody in your family is going to, you know, reap the benefits of that. And then the environment, which, you know, we could have a whole separate podcast on that. And then certainly morally, I mean... No one has to die for me to be healthy and I don't have to eat meat because meat is not healthy. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I love that. I mean, I, I, as I shared in the beginning of the episode, I came to this from the perspective of my own personal health. Right. And a lot Um, of people do. I mean, and and that's fine if that's where you come, but then if that's how you start and then at the end, you know, when you learn all the other reasons that it's so beneficial, it's just like a total no brainer. Like this is so like, I'm never going to change this way of life, you know, this lifestyle. hundred percent. I mean, I, 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 I always make it very clear because I want people to understand that when I make recommendations, I do not allow at all, um, 
the environment or animal welfare to come right. into it because I'm a medical doctor. Right. For right. Sure. So it's my job to be right. very transparent and, and scientific about science, it. Yeah. And science based. Right. Um, but that being said, like in my personal, just speaking personally, mm-hmm. the changes that I made in my life and um, becoming plant based, I, I love the fact that it's great for the environment and great mm-hmm. for the animals. I um, you know, I think that it's really important and I, I want people to understand that like, for example, the Amazon rainforest, I've been so frustrated. I don't normally speak out about this stuff because I really tried to keep it more on the health side of things. I'm a medical doctor. That's what I do. But I have been so frustrated by the coverage of the fires that are burning in the Amazon rainforest. And I want people who are listening to this to understand, because I don't think that the mainstream media is talking about this enough. No, they don't. That these are not forest fires. Okay. This is a rainforest. This is not like a hyper dry place like California. (laughs) This is not a brush fire. These are thousands of man-made fires Mm -hmm. intentionally inflicted. And the reason that it's being done is for animal agriculture, either to create land for for the cattle or to create fields of soy that are going to feed the cattle. Brazil is the number one exporter of meat on the planet, mm. number one. Mm-hmm. And what happened is they, they've been doing this for years. This is not a right. new thing. Right. Um, but what happened is they got new leadership in the presidency who is trying to basically um, improve their economy. And this is what they see as their opportunity to improve the economy. And so they're, they are, of course, doing things that create short-term gain from a fin- financial perspective. Mm-hmm. And for everyone, including them and including our entire planet, it's a long-term loss. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that the Amazon rainforest is a a beautiful um, uh, biodiverse ecosystem. And as we do these things and inflict harm on it, you run the risk that the entire thing collapses because Mm -hmm. it has to produce its own rain to be able to live the way that it lives. And if it stops being able to do that at an adequate level, mm-hmm. then the smallest little degree of change could throw the whole thing off. Mm-hmm. And then what mm-hmm. sort of planet are we passing on to our children? And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And so I I want people to understand what that is. And because I see so much like um, the, uh, I, was, I believe it was the United Nations that offered $20 million to Brazil. Right. And people were like, $20 million? You're not going to take $20 million? $20 million is nothing. Drop in the bucket. Compared to the amount of money that they're going to make growing their economy right. and selling this meat on a global scale. Mm-hmm. And I see people saying, oh, what can I do? What can I do? And they're talking about making donations and stuff like that. Look, I appreciate I appreciate that, that you want to help. People caring. Here's the number one thing you have to stop eating meat mm-hmm. or at a minimum taper it down. Mm-hmm. Who are the number one consumers of meat on the entire planet? Us. Mm-hmm. Us. Per person, we eat more meat than any country in the entire world. But the sad thing is everybody's trying to be like us now because that's, you know, like any developing country, the the gold standard is to want to be more like the Americans, you know? And then you see that across the board that when a country, a country becomes uh more wealthy they start eating more like us and then it's just like all disease follows you know all the western diseases follow suit right after you know 
Yeah, China China has more obesity than the United States does yeah. now. Not percentage-wise, but right. in terms of absolute numbers, they have wow. more obese people than the United States does now. Wow, isn't that crazy? Because they've started to adopt our I bad know. habits. Right. So so anyway, I, I, I just think it's very important for people to understand that if you want to, if you care about that, the Amazon rainforest, the way that you make the change is to do it for yourself. Right. And you will derive the benefit, mm -hmm. but you also be doing your part to help. And these arguments that I've heard people make of, oh, well, they don't export their meat to the United States. That's so silly. Mm -hmm. You know, that's so silly. That's so naive because mm -hmm. it's a global economy, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's about supply and demand. And it doesn't matter whether the meat literally comes straight from Brazil to you. It's about making your contribution to not create as much demand for meat Absolutely. on a global scale. Absolutely. I mean, I'm honestly kind of glad that that Amazon that the Amazon uh, thing happened to the scale that it did because like you said this has been going on for years, but it didn't get mainstream attention because it wasn't so I mean it's like 70% more fires than I think ever in any other, you know, years. Um, so that does it's good that it raises awareness and then we can have this conversation um, but it's true. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that that it's connected to agriculture. They just think, oh, how sad, like it's right. all on fire. Right. Well, and, and I, I think my point is let's not let's not lob stones. Right. If we're not willing to make those changes right. ourselves, right. you got to start with yourself and your own personal responsibility. We can't say, oh, we as a country need to do something, but then not do something yourself. You right. can't say, hey, that country needs to do something right. and then not do something yourself. It's you know, pointing the finger at, at other country. It's easy to point the finger. I right. mean, yeah, and not take responsibility. Well, it's like the Paris Accord, you know, that the United States right. pulled out of, which I think mm -hmm. is crazy. So crazy. But like the, the Paris Accord has nothing to do with the consumption of meat, yet that is the number one number one contributor to global warming know, trust me, like crazy. the amount that you could change by reducing your meat consumption is right. so much more than who cares about like changing your car i mean i'm saying the change so your car small, is good but it's though, so small so in comparison small. i know but people tiptoe around it you know like on the media because well a lot of times media is funded by these big uh these big corporations in the meat industry or the dairy industry has so much money and so much lobby uh money to to lobby with but um but even sci even scientists or people who come on news channels they they never actually come out and say it you know which hurts my soul you know why? <laughs> because you, you people don't want to hear it though well people people don't want to hear it yeah and the other thing is that um Think of the amount, you already touched on this, but think of the amount of money being poured into those stations. Pretend that you are, um, <laughs> I don't even want to call it any specific one, but generic national television station. You guys know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And think of the number of, just pay attention for 30 minutes. Turn on the TV for 30 minutes. How many ads do you see where they zoom in on a burger or a steak or a piece of meat? And just recognize like that could be the steakhouse, the national steakhouse. Do you think that the National Steakhouse has no affiliation with the, the like Cattle Rancher Society and right. all these different things? Right. Of course they do. Of course they do. And mm -hmm. it's it's all part of a organized effort to sell things to you, mm -hmm. right? And if some station comes out and basically bashes the people who are spending money on their station, they're gonna get what do you think they're going to yeah. do? Yeah. They're going to pull all their advertising and money. And put it someplace else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So money talks. Mm -hmm. Right. People, people. It's so funny to me when there are conspiracy theories that float about like 
studies that show that plant, a plant-based diet is healthy. Like that's comical to me. Mm-hmm. Look at where the money is being spent. Look exactly. at, look at, um, you know, our government, what our government basically chooses to subsidize. It's literally oh not organic fruits and vegetables, right. even though that would be, we could make organic fruits and vegetables, um, far more, um, uh, price, yeah. uh, inexpensive, uh, inexpensive price, for, yeah. for poor people. Right. Right. But instead, what we make inexpensive is meat because we basically right. we create all we, we subsidize all of the different parts that go into right. creating meat. Yeah, I think the subsidy amount was around forty billion. I had just looked it up the other day, and only seventeen million is uh, spent on subsidies for fruits or vegetables, which is nothing. That's nothing. That's right. literally like that farmer probably gets like a hundred dollars or something. Right. I mean, got milk. If that. Got milk, beef it's what's for dinner, all these different things. Mm-hmm. Those were government run ad campaigns. Oh. Where's got where's got kale? Right. <laughs> got broccoli? Right. <laughs> That's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um it's it's a crazy world out there. Um as far as like the medical world changing, uh it, I had read somewhere that in California they had tried to to um, pass legislation that uh, doctors had to have 12 hours of uh, nutrition continuing education. There was a backlash from the actual medical world that they did not want that. And then it got dwindled down to like seven hours. And then by once it was all said and done, it was zero hours that they, you know, had to have on nutrition. So, I mean, how do you think that's going to change or when or if that's going to change, that there's going to be more emphasis on, you know, nutrition. I mean, there's obviously so much that y'all have to learn in general. So it's hard. I mean, you can't learn everything, but just to have some general background, you know, on nutrition. You need to. So um, it's it's really tough to put the onus purely on the doctors. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because we well, should take your own responsibility, like you said. I mean, well, because I think the issue is this. Our system chooses not to pay doctors for that conversation Mm -hmm. right a good nutritional conversation takes a minimum of 10 minutes you could easily spend 30 minutes on that conversation Mm -hmm. and but the issue is that again these doctors a lot of them are going out of business right right? right, right. this is this is not about rich doctors who are like driving around in their yachts on the weekends (laughs) and golfing i don't know what that i don't have any friends that golf i'm just gonna (laughs) tell you right now oh no Right. No more golf doctors. Yeah. There's no more golf doctors. Like we're just working and we're just trying to pay our bills and we are like middle-class people, honestly. So, so the issue is that if we don't pay doctors to have those conversations, then it's never going to happen. And if you look at medicine across the board, Mm -hmm. if you look at it across the board, and I, I, I know this because like, for example, I look at medical school and what people choose to go into when you pay doctors, they will do it. If you don't pay doctors, they're not going to do it, right? right? So there's a reason why people don't... Uh, I have mad respect for pediatricians. I actually at one point wanted to be a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. I really thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. Yeah. Okay? Um, I'll spare you the conversation of all the details. But the bottom <laughs> line is this. I have so much respect for those people. Yeah. They don't get paid. Right. And no one wants to go into it. Who gets oh, paid? To help children? Orthopedic surgeons. Oh. Spine surgeons. Oh. Get paid so a ridiculous much. amount of money. Wow. And so guess what Guess what? a lot of really smart people are choosing to do? They're choosing to go become spine surgeons. Yeah. Are they contributing to the better health of our country? With full respect to those individual people, 
they're not making people healthier. Mm-hmm. They're addressing acute issues with mediocre results, frankly. Right. Yeah. So, but they are getting rich. Right. So, and that's that's the problem. You have to you have to you have to ultimately decide to pay people. You can give right. a doctor education on the topic. Right. But at the end of the day, like when I have these conversations in my clinic, I fully know that it's costing me money. Mm-hmm. I fully know, and I choose not to have that talk with my wife about it. Because, well, because the reality is this, like I, I, if I, if I chose to not do that and I added more patients to my practice, we're we're talking about profits of like clearly five, potentially six figures Mm -hmm. of additional money per year. Mm -hmm. So, um, at the end of the day, I have made my entire career on doing what is right. I did not go into medicine because it was a well-paying job. Right. I went into medicine because I believed that that was the right thing to do. Right. If I wanted a well-paying job, I would have been a banker. <laughs> True. Yeah. I mean, that's that's um, what a lot of, uh, I'm not going to say, uh, well, my husband, so he went to Vanderbilt, actually. Do nice. you went to Vanderbilt undergrad? Yeah. yeah. He graduated in 03, and a lot oh, of his man, friends. Oh, I was 02. Oh, nice. Yeah. Maybe y'all crossed heads. Probably. Uh, he was an engineering science major and math major. Hey. So y'all would have, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nerd mode, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, but all of his friends, he's a web developer, but I mean, so many of his friends went into banking and finance but he just couldn't i mean it would have been soul crushing to him i mean yeah he could have made a ton of money and maybe been retired by now or something but it it what how was that you know benefiting humanity yeah i mean those are big questions i have i have friends who did that and went to new york and i see them on facebook traveling the world right um and you know it's ridiculous the amount of money that they make and it is what it is it is we all make our own choices totally for sure so your practice, you consider it, um, I saw on your website, you call it integrative gastroenterology. Yeah, I mean, I probably, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't like applying any type of terms to yeah, it. Yeah, right. I'm just me. I'm just going to give you the best of me and, and, and honestly provide guidance towards what I think is going to help you. Right. Um, but if I were to apply a term, I probably should revise that and, and write lifestyle. Yeah, I had that written down too, lifestyle medicine. And I like that. I like that term, lifestyle medicine. Um, just trying to encourage people to make a lifestyle change, which is the most profound thing you can do for your life, you know? I mean, I honestly think that if you want to address the root cause of disease, that's where you need to start. Yeah. We can take medications. Medications can definitely help people, particularly when they get you better so that you can focus on the lifestyle right. issues. Yeah, if you feel horrible, it's really difficult to all of a sudden try to make right. a huge lifestyle change. Take someone who's got a new diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. They mm-hmm. come into my practice. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit there and be like, hey, just like eat this way and you'll be fine. Right. That would be very naive. Right. I'm going to put them on medication. Right. We're going to put their ulcerative colitis into remission. And then we're going to play the long game. Mm-hmm. Now we are going to play the long game. The long game is let's change your diet and lifestyle. Let's optimize those things. Let's get your let's get your gut healthy again. And when we get your gut healthy again, we may be able to strip away that medication. Right. You may not need it. Right. Right. Um. That's really great. I mean, hopefully, people will take away trying to make this change for their lives if they haven't already. But I know there's a lot of people who are listening who already have. <laughs> um. But I think making sure that people understand that it doesn't have to be all or nothing right away, because I certainly didn't, just like you didn't get here all at once. I didn't know, mine was a slow, slow moving train, you know, um, because it can be overwhelming to 
to think that you have to just like cut everything out cold turkey. Oh, that's the well, that's the problem. That's the problem is that if we if we make it too much of an all or nothing phenomenon, mm-hmm. then you just scare people away. Oh yeah. So it's to me, it's progress over perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care what your starting point is. If you're five percent plant based, frankly, you're not that far off what the national average is. Right. Okay. Right. So and and the key here is let's start moving in the right direction, and it may start with literally like one meal per week that's it and just start it there and like with me doing a smoothie which i think that's the easiest thing to implement really literally bananas berries and kale yeah right and then add whatever you want like some chia seeds and or whatever yeah um but like literally you start with something that simple as a meal replacement and you feel so much better and then just grow it from there yeah yeah um what are your favorite books Oh gosh. Okay. So it's kind of funny. Uh, when I first started, so my wife is an avid reader. Yeah. She can pick up a book and it'll be 500 pages long and that would take me three months to read and she can read it in like a couple hours. What? She's just like, Oh, I wish I could be like that. Yeah. Oh, she's, and she's brilliant and she's a gifted writer. Right. Um, and so, so it's funny cause I, 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 I picked this up very quickly in the process of us dating. And when we were on our second date, she asked me what my favorite book was, and I was so embarrassed to tell her because it's, I mean, frankly, kind of trashy. But, um, but it is sort of timely right now, which is that my favorite book as a kid was Stephen King. It. Oh my god! That was my favorite book. And that movie is coming out. And now the second, the second yeah, movie, the which is basically one. just kind of completing the whole book, yeah, um, has just come out recently. So yeah, so I, that was my favorite <laughs> book when I was a kid. Um, you know, now I'm so busy. I wish I had more time to read for right. pleasure and read fiction. Yeah. But I'm, when I do read, I, it's many times nonfiction related to like the stuff that I'm right. doing. So, right. yeah. So what's your favorite microbiome book or gut health book? Uh, so there's, there's a couple of options. Um, I, I will tell you that I am really looking forward to sharing my book because yeah. I feel like people are going to love it and it's going to... It's going to give you what I haven't found in a book yet. Nice. Okay. Cool. Um, so I'm really excited to share that. But a couple books that I do love. Robin Chutkin mm-hmm. wrote The Microbiome Solution. Oh, um, yeah. And so I thought that was a great book. Um, she is someone I have great respect for. And she also mm-hmm. is published by the same publisher as me, which is Penguin Random House with the Avery imprint. Um, Justin Sonnenberg is a famous researcher and he wrote something called the good gut mm-hmm. and it's a little sciencey, but it's like really good. Yeah. 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 And then I see on your bookshelf, you got the mind gut oh, connection, yeah. which is Emron Meyer. Yeah. And so like, you know, I was talking earlier about like, we want to curate really high quality, well-respected sources. Right. Like you need to think about your source mm-hmm. right there. Emron Meyer. Emmer Meyer, I mean, Emmer Meyer right. to me is on par yeah. with Rob Knight, who I was talking about as being one of the leaders right. in terms of microbiome research. This is mm-hmm. not some quack dude who, you know, yeah. has an Instagram account and is on steroids. Yeah, right. Because there's lots of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, as far as like the plant-based movement, um, there's just so many good doctors out there who are not, are not, like, they're not trying to get famous, like you said. Like, they literally just want to put this information out there because they want to help people. And right. that's... That's what you want, <laughs> yep. you know. Totally awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna look into those books. Um. So yeah. So you have a book coming out. Obviously, that's exciting. When is the 
due date, I guess. Is that where you go? I, <laughs> so no, I, I don't have any like specific date that I can announce at this point. Have you finished writing it or are you still working? Uh, it? It's basically written. So oh, no. yeah. So the story is I got my book deal in November of 2018 mm-hmm. and um, which was one of, the, I mean, it would take me 10 minutes to tell the whole story, but it was such a great week and yeah, um, a lot of fun. I was, I was in Penguin Random House on the day that Michelle Obama's book came out. And, um, and also got to like tour New York and all these great publishers. So met a lot of cool people that day. Um, and so I got my book deal in November of 2018 and started writing basically in January and I wrote nonstop. I've never been so focused in my entire life. I was up at five in the morning every day. I was going to bed early so that I could get up. Um, I was writing on the weekends. I did not take a day off and I wrote from January until May 1st. Wow. And then we went through a revision process with my editor um, and I turned in my second version of the book on September 1st. I'm feeling really, really, really excited about this Uh book. I cannot wait to share it with people. Yeah. And so, and I think it's cool because the thing is this, like you and I, we can have this conversation. We could talk all day and we can have a 90 minute podcast, right? And you guys are getting a taste of what is in the book. But the, the reality is this the highest form of human communication that exists that will ever exist is the writing in a book because what you're getting when my book does come out is you are getting me everything that i got as focused as i've ever been for five six months and it's all just put into basically compressed into 300 pages of text yeah and so that i think is really cool and no matter how the book does um, like I hope it does well, obviously, sure because well. it's got a message that I really am passionate yeah. about, obviously. Right. But no matter how the book does, um, I'm always going to be proud of this because this is like a, a piece of my soul yeah. that I've just put into paper. Absolutely. And I feel like people in general, you can comprehend things better. When I, I learn when I read something, you know, like when you see it in writing, yeah. it really sticks in your brain. You can kind of understand it more. Totally. So. And, then, and then the other thing that's kind of exciting and cool about my book is that you know, so I, I believe in like the science. I believe in showing people this path through the science towards better health. And mm-hmm. I feel like the book makes a very compelling argument. But then the key is like, you can't just stop there, right? right? You, you you can't just say, hey, there's the mountaintop. Right. Go get there, yeah. right? I want to give you the path all the way there. Right. And so that's where the book actually has a full 28-day plan, mm-hmm. including the recipes. We have over 70 recipes. Mm-hmm specifically designed to to be like flexible in the sense that this is not like this is not the I mean I I really don't like calling out specific dietary plans because I feel like it's a little bit unfair but this is not the whole 30 for example in the sense that it's not a rigid hey you have to do this on this particular day I'm giving you the plan I'm also building in flexibility to be practical with the way that we really live as humans yeah each day is different each day is different um and the recipes are designed to be something that like I could personally do or a college could could, pers- could personally nice. do. Yeah. Um, and they're delicious. And okay. so, um, so I'm super excited for people to check that out and have a chance to try it. That's awesome. What's the books? Uh, what's the book called? It's called fiber fueled. Nice. Fiber fueled. Love it. Yeah. Cool. So what yeah. else? Is, so you have obviously what else? That is a huge thing. Uh, what else is in the works? Any, any other uh, well, there's or? my Instagram account, um, yes. the gut health MD, right. uh, so people can come and join me there. I'm on right. Facebook too, under that name. Cool. And then, 
Um, I just actually posted on Instagram yesterday. I told you I've been growing behind the scenes a lot. So for the first time I shared my new website and I have an email newsletter. So people who are listening, come to my website, theplantfedgut.com, theplantfedgut.com and um, sign up for my newsletter. So I'm going to be sharing recipes, gut health tips, you know, musings. And then when there's big announcements like, hey, I got my date for my book or like, hey, I'm looking for people who want to be a part of this movement. Like, let's let's you know, I, I'm looking for my army of plant fed people yeah. to sell this book and get it out there. Who's in? Who wants in? Right. Let's do this together. Um, that's going to come through the newsletter, too. So cool. said so something for people to definitely check out. Awesome. Well, I am super stoked. And again, I appreciate it so much that you took the time to be on here. Thanks so, for having me on. It's fun. Yeah. Okie doke. Until next time, peace and plants. See y'all. That was amazing, right? I love gut health and microbiome information. Chatting with him was so much fun. I still think it's bizarre that I sit and uh, chat about these things when I think about my, you know, self 10 years ago. But this just, this subject is... It's hard to not be enthusiastic about, I think, and to really see the research coming out um, because this is kind of the new the new frontier and uh, we're in the midst of it. So our generation is is uh, being able to watch it unfold. And, you know, in 100 years, they're going to be like, can you believe that they didn't understand back then the impact of the bacteria in our, you know, bodies? Because... Obviously, there's been a long time period that nobody had any clue. Um, but I think definitely in the next 10 or 20 years, we're going to see an even bigger explosion of this uh, microbiome research and the effects it has on all different diseases. So, um, you know, and also the impact that plants have on it. Uh, it's just going to be so much fun to see what else emerges. So, as always... Thank you so much for listening, and if you are enjoying these podcasts, please be sure to subscribe. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, which is on uh, therefinedhippie.com. I send out uh, recipes, tips. I also send out secret recipes that are not on my website and will never be there, so you have to sign up to get those, and... You can also follow me on Instagram at The Refined Hippie. I post daily on my stories of what I'm up to, tips, uh, recommendations, that kind of thing. So until next time, my friends, peace and plants. Peace.